You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 345, Interview with Joe Lee about his book, Forgiveness, the story of Eva Kaur, survivor of the Auschwitz twin experiments. Joe Lee is a cartoonist, illustrator, writer, and former circus clown. He is the author slash illustrator of books on clowns, Dante, and Greek mythology, editorial cartoonist for the Bloomington Herald Times, and staff illustrator of Our Brown Country magazine. Mr. Lee is a graduate of Indiana University. His most recent project is called Forgiveness, the story of Eva Kaur, survivor of the Auschwitz twin experiments. It details the devastating yet powerful story of Eva Kaur and her sister and their creation of Candles, a Holocaust museum in Indiana. So, Mr. Lee, thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Harris. It's great to be here and great to talk about this subject. Absolutely. I, I loved your book, by the way. But that's what we're going to obviously talk about today. But um, I did want to ask before we jump into it, um, how did you come to know Eva's story? Well, here in Indiana, Eva really had become a celebrity, a living celebrity and someone mm-hmm. who had suffered a great deal. And the whole arc of her story was well known and and needed to be even known further. She actually was uh, with her Candles Museum in Terre Haute, had worked that tirelessly so people would understand what had happened to the Holocaust in the Holocaust, and what had specifically happened to her and her sister and the children who were taken as experiments. Mm-hmm. 
And so she actually, um, the Holocaust is mandated to be taught in schools right. here in Indiana. And that was with her work. That's great, because now that I've read your book, uh, Indiana is now on my bucket list. I have definitely got to get to her. Um, I'm not sure what's the word I should be using, museum or uh, display, but uh, definitely want to check that out as soon as it's obviously safe to travel. Yeah, and it's a it's a small museum. In fact, there this weekend on uh, November 13th, I'm doing a book signing there, and they're having a, a group of the alumni, uh, folks who had gone on trips with Eva. Uh, And she took many trips uh, in the last 10 or 12 years of um, groups to see Auschwitz and Birkenau and to tell her story. And they're they're going to have another one this summer for the first time as, as things and travel starts to open up more and to be safe. Right. No, that's great because I think you went with her. Was it 2019? Yeah, that was. Um, and actually, um, well, it, the the whole story is my wife is uh, was an art educator for years, mm-hmm. and she, she was part of a group of teachers who had gotten grants from the Lilly Endowment. Right. And these teacher renewal grants, and then in the summer. They meet at Indiana State University in Terre Haute and for a few days and do some uh, learning and, and, you know, sharing notes from people in the profession. Mm-hmm. And she went with a group of teachers to um, Eva's museum, the Candles Museum, and she heard Eva speak for two hours wow. uh, and um, took questions. I mean, she was... She was a real dynamo when it came to public speaking, which you can, you can probably, if you just go on YouTube, you'll yes. see she was a presence. But um, she, uh, that was in, well, 2018. Mm-hmm. And so my wife, Bess, called me as soon as Eva was done speaking and said, Joe, you've got to come and hear her speak. And so we weren't able to do that until November. This was uh, in July that Bess had seen her. Right. And in the meanwhile, we had gone to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to visit friends who are actually professors at the University of Pittsburgh. And my friend Mark that we visit is, uh, was a, I know him through the world of comic books. Mm-hmm. And he new um, writers and illustrators in Pittsburgh who had put together a group of comic books called Kurtzpow, which uh, were short stories about survivors of the Holocaust, eight to ten pages. And I just thought, when I saw those, I thought, well, this is Eva's whole story and as important as it is Mm -hmm. from her childhood in Ports, Romania, to Auschwitz and Birkenau, and then finally to Israel, and then to Terre Haute, and getting to this uh, incredible uh, unburdening of her past trauma with forgiveness, uh, that it needed an entire uh, graphic biography, a graphic Mm -hmm. novel to tell her story. And of course, then 
even more so. But I also thought it's a way to engage, especially younger people right. who um, I think are not getting uh, the um, you know, enough about what happened mm-hmm. uh, from World War One um, to the rise of the Nazis and then the the terrible genocide that happened. Right. So I thought this this is a great way to do it. And then I'm a cartoonist and illustrator, and I draw pictures. So it was it was a a great fit for me. It's the way I can tell a story. Right. I'm glad you brought that up because before we focus on Eva, uh, I want to focus on your story for a second. So uh, if I'm remembering correctly, you have either memories or you. Um, you had a time when your father was sharing his experiences from World War II. So you do have that, a very strong connection through him. Yeah. And and in fact, I I spoke to a a women's organization last week Mm -hmm. and just looking around the audience, I could see that most of us were of an age that probably had direct, you know, relatives, Mm -hmm. fathers, brothers, you know, whatever the relationship was, but a direct connection to World War II, which along with uh, survivors is becoming less and less direct all the time. But my father was, um, he was uh, in the third armored division of the first army. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a, a tank mechanic and his, uh, the commanding general, was Maurice Rose, who was one of the few Jewish uh, commanding officers in World War II. Wow. And who actually died uh, as a result of combat. Mm-hmm. And my father always spoke about him with such reverence. And it was, um, and he would talk about the war. Usually my father was quite a raconteur, quite a storyteller. <laughs> And most of his stories were funny, but then he did talk uh, briefly about the Third um, Armored Division liberating the camp of Middlebrow Dora, which is uh, he always referred to as Nordhausen. I think that was the the name that the most people used, mm-hmm. and he would talk about that experience, which I have since um, seen that there is archival. Uh, film footage of that liberation. And it's really shocking. And you you get a sense what these uh, American and British soldiers, uh, you know, all the allies saw Mm -hmm. as they liberated this. And this was a a concentration camp, a work camp. It it wasn't one of the death camps in Poland. But what they saw, saw was so shocking. Um, just the the way human beings treated other human beings, the bodies mm-hmm. stacked up, um, lying there, emaciated. That it, it sometimes it was hard to tell that that was that had been a living, breathing human being, and then the survivors who were just stick thin and um, actually were in danger then of overeating. And right. which one of those conditions that the uh, troops, as they were passing out 
candy bars and and different things, different sustenance they weren't aware of until, you know, somebody said, no, you've got to be really careful because if people haven't eaten any nutritious food in weeks, right, uh, it can be overeating is a real danger. Um, So it was one of the things that um, I found really interesting about seeing this archival footage is one thing, um, and I don't think uh, General Rose was the only one who did this. I think that there may have been the the idea of having the villagers, Mm -hmm. the local villagers who were closest to these camps to come and actually see what had been done. And when you see the film, you see um, people dressed up as if they're going on a picnic. Right. And then when they get to the camp, the absolute shock and horror. Now, they certainly knew about anti-Semitism and brutality and all that, but I think it's that cognitive dissonance that we so often let get the upper hand where we don't, we keep from ourselves the entire um, story about what is really happening next door. And so it was, um, when you see the the shock and then you see the local villagers who mm-hmm. were, um, that Rose and the, the troops had dig the graves right. for the dead. It's, um, I mean, to say it's, it's moving and sobering is a real understatement. Right. Now, to me, everything you just said circles back to something you just said a minute ago, which is because this is so important, we have to remember of what cruelty humans are capable of. We can never forget what happened. And so whether it's a history book, a work of fiction, or a graphic novel, any I, I, I think this was your point earlier, any way to get out that story to as many people as you can is very important. So hopefully we don't relive this. Exactly. And that was, I mean, that was Eva's mission. Right. Um, she wanted the story shared. She wanted people to know what had happened and to keep that from happening again. And as she talked about it, it's really fascinating and uh, to see that survivors of all kinds of different incredible traumatic experiences come to her mm-hmm. as not a savior or anything, but somebody that that had found a way to relieve the trauma. And so um, there were rape victims and uh, Rwandans who had suffered through the genocide in Rwanda, just all kinds of people who found this saving in a way, that a, a way of getting through it. But you can't get through anything unless you know what it is you're getting through. And you can't stop something if you're unaware of what it is you're right. trying to stop. So she, she was a, a really pushed that. And one funny thing uh, about it is because she wanted her story told. Right. And when I presented this idea, to the Leah Simpson um, at the museum. And because when I finally heard um, 
Eva in person and got to meet her. Right. I mean, it was just incredible. She was uh, facing heart surgery in the in the next month or so. Mm-hmm. But there again, she spoke and answered questions for over two hours and met with people. And I thought, well, I don't want to to run this idea by her then. So I I talked with Leah. I did sample. And um, Eva was very, she was excited to have it done in this form, although she didn't quite understand what a graphic novel (laughs) Her experience of comic books was was limited. And so she had asked uh, Leah, is he going to make me a superhero? And I I assured them that, no, there won't be any spandex involved in the production of this comic. That's best. So, yeah, I think that's best. So if we could, and we're going to, we're going to dig down into that earlier about how she found a way to make her life better by forgiving those who had did did wrong to her. So we'll get into that. But so when you, when your graphic novel starts out, it's world war one. And I'm assuming you're, you're, you're giving the background of Eva's life, you know, for the readers, that kind of thing. Uh, then uh, you explain some of the interwar period. World War II breaks out, which brings us to the camps, which brings us to the Vansi Conference, and it's yeah. and it's these camps that is going to dominate Eva Kors and her sister's early life. Could you tell us a bit about her, her sister, and the family? Well, they were a, a Jewish family, the Moses family, mm-hmm. uh, and they were lived in a small village called Ports which um, still exist in Romania, which was in the Transylvania mm. part of Romania, which is actually a place. It's right. not just in Dracula <laughs> stories. There, right. um, there's, you know, no vampires, but it, unfortunately there was something much worse right. <laughs> there. Right. But they, um, and they lived in this small village and were part of the village. But once um, the Nazis came on the, on the scene in Germany and started to, uh, with the Blitzkrieg, Poland, and and to take over different areas of Europe. Right. That, um, you know, fascism grew. And they, especially Eva's mother, kept thinking, well, we're going to be safe. Right. We are far away from what is happening in Germany, in Poland. and But then when things started to change in Hungary, mm-hmm. and Hungary took over that area and their fascist party, then it, you know, they were subjected to a growing um, animosity and mm-hmm. cruelty. And so whenever there was a problem in school, that it would be blamed on the Moses sisters. Wow. Um, and they were given punishments like, um, you know, throwing uh, dry corn kernels on a wooden floor and making the twins, who were just po- probably eight or nine years old at the time, kneel on those for an hour or more. And so just, uh, and, and just the, um, anti-Semitic material that started to show up in in films and posters and just on and on. So they became 
more and more separated from the community that they had known. Right. And they did try to escape finally. There was a chance that early on mm-hmm. uh, that Eva's father and his brother, after they had been arrested and beaten up by the police, right. uh, they went to Palestine and they saw an opportunity to go there in the late 30s. Mm-hmm. But Eva's mother d- said she thought it won't we're going to suffer some, but it's not going to be that bad. Right. And I don't want to leave my parents who can't make that kind of a trip and, and uproot. So they um, eventually, the only Jewish family in this village were arrested and taken to a ghetto, which was just an open field uh, surrounding an old brick factory. Hey, everyone. Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Another reason that I'm glad to have you on the show was a couple of weeks ago, I did an episode about a gentleman. His name was Vitold. He was was part of the Polish underground. uh, He was an uh, underground agent um, in Auschwitz, and he leaves in 1943. So it's convenient that I have you here with Eva's Hmm. story to pick up in 1944. So like you said, the family is taken to a, 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 a ghetto, but eventually they make their way to Auschwitz. Um, and I think it's March of 1944 where they end up in Auschwitz. What yeah. happens to the family the moment they get off the train? Well, and it's um, because the Nazis, they certainly didn't want anybody to know the full uh, thing that they were doing in these camps, in the death camps. So at the time that the Moses family was taken, it was a, there were um, 400,000 Jews from the Hungarian area mm-hmm. that were taken, and they were not registered. Uh, before th- that, uh. they... People had been registered, and they were given particular assignments. And but at this point, the the Nazis just wanted to exterminate people. Mm-hmm. That and so as soon as they got into the camp, and this was after days of traveling in a box car, uh, in a car that was a cattle car, um, with eighty or ninety 
maybe even a hundred people crowded into a cattle car. Mm-hmm. And Eva talked about the chaos, the dogs barking, the, the shouting in German, the uh, people screaming, and just this incredible chaos that surrounded them once the doors were open. Mm-hmm. Once they were on the platform, um, that the um, that is where the separation. It was the uh, the selection platform right. where where um, Mengele, Doctor Joseph Mengele, and the other German doctors and the SS troops separated people and those that they did not think they could use in any other way. They would tell them, "You're going." You're going to go have a shower. Mm-hmm. And they would take them to the gas chambers. And almost immediately, once they stepped down uh, out of the boxcar, mm-hmm. Eva's father and her older sisters were, were gone right. in the blink of an eye, never to be seen again. And um, Eva's mother held on to the twins. Mm-hmm. And who were 10 at the time, and they were wearing matching maroon dresses. They were the last dresses that her mother had, had made for them. Wow. And so a um, SS soldier shouted to their mother, uh, are they twins? You know, Zwillinga. Mm-hmm. And Eva's mother asked, is that a good thing? And the soldier said, yes. And she said, yes, they are twins. And at that point, they are ripped out of their mother's arms. Their mother is taken away screaming, and she was immediately taken to the gas chambers. And um, even her sister Miriam were taken um, in Joseph Mengele's twin experiments. And he experimented. He he especially wanted twins because he had this warped, idea that he could dis- he could increase the um, German, the Aryan race right. by discovering things about twins and so could increase reproduct- reproductivity uh, among the Aryan peoples, but at the same time think about, it, well, how's the easiest way to eliminate the um, right. these people? Because it, it was I mean, the the stories that one hears in Auschwitz and Birkenau and mm-hmm. and from the Polish guides there, that there were so many ashes from the crematoriums that they couldn't bury them. They There was so much. So, I mean, the complete insanity of here they are killing thousands and thousands of, of people right. every day. And they're worried about, well, how, how do we get rid of the, the, the remains and the evidence? Right. So uh, it's beyond belief, really. So um, Eva and her sister Miriam are 10 years old. Their parents are ripped away from them literally as they get off the train. We, I guess we don't know if the little girls knew what happened to their family directly. Probably not. But... These girls learn very quickly, you either work 
or you're done away with. And and I guess it was just fortunate for them because they were only 10 that they were twins and someone took an interest in them. Yeah, that they, they could be, I mean, the horrible thing is that to be used as in somebody's sick experiments mm-hmm. is the only thing that kept them alive. Um, because at that point, uh, in the camps and during the war, because uh, Germany was had all, it was already losing the war, mm-hmm. and they um, so it was just to continue this. But they they were of use to Mengele and people between usually between the ages of fourteen and. Now, early 20s, if you were considered able-bodied mm-hmm. and the um, SS, the Nazis, thought you could be of some kind of work use, they you might have been taken off the train and then selected to do that. Right. Children of that age were, were sent off with their parents uh, to the chambers. Yeah. And so it was because they had some value to Mengele in these experiments. And and the experiments, when you read about them or you see photographs or I try to represent some of that, but mm-hmm. you can't imagine the whole uh, sickness of it and what they did. Things like um, not just injecting weird chemicals mm-hmm. and bacteria into these children, but um, they might put a piece of oak, embed that in somebody's body to see what happens. And then they might take uh, a piece of pine to see if the the reaction, the body's reaction was different. Mm -hmm. And those were the kind of things that were done. And um, so the girls never knew they, until they found out definitely that their the rest of their immediate family had been killed, which was some time after this, right. they still never found out what had actually been done to them in these experiments. Wow! Well, yeah, because basically he's a hack, but he's got the backing of uh, the SS of Nazi Germany, so he's going to be able to conduct his experiments. Uh, it's it's just an, another element of the mad madness that's going on in this camp. So if Doctor Mengele is the uh, antagonist, if you will, then I guess there's the the protagonist besides Eva and her sister is Mrs. Um, Chingiri. I'm probably saying it wrong, but could you tell us a little about her and how she impacted the girls? Well, she was a woman from a, a Jewish woman from a neighboring village uh, uh, that Eva's mother had known. Mm-hmm. And um, they recognized her. She also was the mother of twins. And uh, um, she managed to convince the uh, SS and the doctors on the selection platform that she had some value to them. Right. Not quite sure why. I don't know. (laughs) But but, but she managed to do that. And so she became, as much as she could, Mm -hmm. a protector 
And then later on in the story, it um, really helped the girls. But it did what she could to while she was watching over her twins right. to uh, protect the, the Moses sisters as well. Wow. And, um, you know, the, the way you... You hear and read um, survivor stories, and each one is the, the details are different. Right. But so often, it it, um, it people who were willing to, you know, risk everything mm-hmm. by saying, "No, I, I think I could do this instead." And it, boy, that is a hard thing to do. Right. Um, and not always effective. Mm-hmm. But so she she later on um, after the liberation, she assisted the girls in, in um, by saying that she was a relative and um, the girls were waiting in. A, they'd been in a Catholic orphanage and then in a, they were able to go with her and her family. Mm-hmm. Uh, to a, a um, refugee camp because she, Mrs. Changeri, said that she was actually a relative. Um, um, right. So they, um, because there was no information about what had happened to uh, Eva and her and Miriam's parents mm-hmm. and the rest of her family, so it allowed them to get to this refugee camp and and eventually get back to their village. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Right. A truly a guardian angel for these two uh, little girls. That is incredible. Yeah. And and the, the drawings were, were very powerful. I just want to tell the, uh, the listeners that. But so like you were saying a minute ago, they're injected with all different kinds of things for these crazy, wacky experiments. Um, obviously, when someone puts chemicals in your body, there's headaches, there's burning skin, there's other nausea, there's things like that. But it gets to the point where Eva gets very sick. And we learn two things from your book. One, she's even though she's 10 years old, she's very tough and she doesn't really like bullies very much. But two, even though she's sick, she knows she has to survive, not just for herself, but also for her sister as well. Yeah, because uh, the... If one twin died, mm-hmm. Engele decided that the other twin was no longer useful in their experiments. Ah. And he would immediately uh, have the other twin, the surviving twin, executed. Right. So, and they knew that this happened. So, even knew she had to survive because mm-hmm. if she didn't survive, then her sister Miriam wouldn't survive for so for those weeks that she was um, in an infirmary mm-hmm. and that, that one could put that in air quotes because it, it's not they didn't really receive any medical assistance. It was just to to separate them and see if they would 
survive. Uh, He struggled uh, for those weeks to get back to her sister, knowing that if if she died, then Miriam would be dead very soon too. I, and, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm I'm just I'm sorry. I'm just trying to imagine being 10, 11 years old and trying to figure out the best way not to die in a camp. I mean, it just seems insane to us, but for these two young ladies, this was their reality and they had to figure out the rules in order to try to survive. Yeah. Yeah, so you would uh, steal food and and I talk about and she um Eva talked very poignantly about stealing potatoes right. um right. and which was uh, if you usually if you were caught that was an immediate uh death sentence and uh and it didn't an age didn't matter or any of that that it was against the rules and if you did that that was it Um, so it was, um, you know, this struggle to survive. I think it, everything kind of comes down to one point. It's Mm -hmm. how will I make it through this day and the days beyond without knowing what might happen. And the chances are, is that you won't survive because that it isn't set up for that. Exactly. Yeah. It's, so, yeah. Sorry. It's, go ahead. Uh, I, I, that children in these cases could find a way of doing that um, mm-hmm. is really incredible. Um, but it, it's, I, I think that that having that purpose that, which was more than just saving yourself, but saving, you know, the, your beloved twin sister. Yes. Uh, it it was a bond that made that whatever happened, you were going to to your utmost try to to get through it. So yeah. During during those weeks that Eva was away, mm-hmm. they continued to experiment on Miriam. Right. And so later on in life, they when Miriam started to have kidney trouble, they realized that um, she needed a transplant, which Eva provided Wow, a kidney. But they also discovered that her kidneys had not matured or grown in size past the that of a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. So um, the repercussions of these experiments, even for the s- survivors, continued in ways that, and not just in the psychological trauma, but in real physical harm that had been done to people that you couldn't say, well, it was this. And so Eva, even on the last, that last day of her life, right. um, as we were sitting there, you know, between the ruins of the gas chambers and the crematoriums, the, the main ones, uh, in Birkenau, mm-hmm. she was talking about she still wanted to know what had been injected to the, in them, what had been done to them. Right. And um, she really thought that somewhere in the world there was that information, that Mengele had right. 
records of it that he had managed to get out of the camp. And where were they? Uh, so take, let's do this. Before we go on with the main story, let's finish off Dr. Mengele. So he's been doing these experiments. Um, obviously, the Soviet uh, troops are getting closer. We do find out from your book that Mengele leaves, I think, comes back and takes his notes and is yeah. not seen for, I guess, either ever or for a long time. Well, he, um, yeah, he got out with boxes of, of records mm-hmm. uh, of these, uh, the, the notes and all the folders that one can only assume were dealt with, you know, what they, was being done. Right. And... He was searched by uh, Simon Wiesenthal and, and different Nazi hunters mm-hmm. for years and years and years. And finally, um, in 1985, so 40 years later, they exhumed a body in Brazil mm-hmm. and of a German immigrant named Wolfgang Gerhardt. And... What they they did was they they were able to identify Gerhard as actually Mengele, ah. and he had um, suffered a, a stroke when he was swimming off the coast in 1979, mm-hmm. and then was buried. Um, so there are. Of course, uh, DNA evidence, all that wasn't available at the time. So there was always a question that um, did, was this truly the body of Mangla? Mm-hmm. And I think now um, it, it's, they're pretty sure that it is indeed. Um, but he had managed to get to South America. And... Um, you know, there he was in Brazil. Right. I'm ass- years, years later. I'm sorry. I'm assuming no one ever found any notes or his specifically his notes from that no. time. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, some thought, and I think Eva gave some thought to this, that as, you know, a lot of the um, rocket scientists mm-hmm. and uh, physicists who um, ended up, being involved in the uh, American space program later on, right? That people bartered their information to escape, mm. and so there was always some thought that he might have done that. And with Eva, it was the hope that something could eventually be discovered. That right. um, yeah, they they. As far as I know, no one has ever come across those records. Right. So she never really found out what was injected into them um, and what obviously affected her sister, cutting her life short. Um, Yes. So going back to the main story. So it's January of 1945, and the Germans know they pretty much have to get out. So they line up all the able-bodied POWs. They're going to march back to, uh, to Germany. But Eva and Miriam don't make the trip, and so they, I guess, along with some others, are left behind in the camp. Yeah, those are those were the death marches, mm. and um, and uh, 
it's hard to know exactly what the Nazis were thinking, right. what they were going to accomplish, other than the more people that died, um, the less evidence they assumed there would be. Oh. Anyway, the um, Nazis came back, and as um, Eva was trying to get some bread that had been left in the kitchen, right. they uh, start shooting oh. at the uh, the prisoners who had remained in the camp. Mm-hmm. And um, so eventually, Eva and Miriam and, a, and a, a lot of them go to, this was in Birkenau. Right. Um, and Auschwitz, Auschwitz won, and Birkenau is Auschwitz two. Mm-hmm. And there were um, several work camps um, that were also part of the Auschwitz camp system. Um, if you read Eli Wiesel, or Primo Levi, they were both in work camps that were part of Auschwitz, but weren't the main, um, well, Birkenau was the main death camp. Mm -hmm. Um, So they go to um, Auschwitz one, they get separated for a while, and it's devastating um, after this struggle to stay connected through these months and all the suffering that then to get separated, but they did finally find each other and, and managed to um, survive in Auschwitz one until the liberation by the Soviet army. Wow. Yes. Speaking of the suffering. So everything these girls have gone through, I want to skip a little bit to leave something for the um, readers, but they do end up, with a cousin's mom back in Romania, and yeah. and I'm not and I'm not certainly blaming anybody, but it is um, the end of the war, and I guess no one's really thinking about the psychological damage done to these girls through the camps. That maybe they should just be happy that they survived, but these girls are still suffering from their time uh, in that camp, even though they're nice and safe back in Romania. Yeah, and it's. Um well, and now I think we are paying as a, a species much more attention to childhood trauma, right? And uh, even generational trauma. Mm-hmm. And of course, these girls were—I mean, anyone would have suffered terrible trauma, right? After this experience, um, and but for these girls that end up with a um, an aunt in. Romania, who is, who has had her own traumatic experiences and is not particularly a warm uh, person, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's devastating because once again they are on their own, right? And uh, um, so it's uh, it, it's very devastating. I remember even. Um, hearing the playwright, Sam Shepard, um, talk about his father's experience in World War II. And he mm-hmm. talked about so many of the American troops that experienced war and the, the whole idea of actually ever admitting the you know, flashbacks or nightmares or right. any of that was was really at the time wasn't 
acceptable in a way that we now look at PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, he always thought his father's alcoholism and a lot of the alcoholism that we saw in that greatest generation after they returned from the war right. was a way of self-medicating the terrible trauma ah, of the war. Right. Um, and it, it makes sense that to experience these things, you just don't say, okay, the sun's out. It's a new day. Right. I'm ready to get on with it. Right. And, and um, yeah, so that's just something yeah. the girls are going to find out they have to do with on their own. And like you said earlier, they do have each other. Um, and, and, as humans do, they persevere. They grow up. Uh, they go to Palestine. Eventually, um, Eva moves to America. She gets married. But the part that really got me, and this is the part of your book, where she's figuring out that she's having nightmares. She's still tress- stressed out, PTSD. And she's got to find some outlet for this. And she finally gets her chance in 1978 being a part of a series about the Holocaust. Yeah, she um, and um, many of us remember that when the the importance of this um, TV film with mm-hmm. Meryl Streep and James Woods, right. that it was the first time that we were seeing, uh, we as Americans, mm-hmm. as a general public, were seeing enactments of what it was what this Holocaust was and what it represented and what was done to the Jews and other peoples, uh, the Slavs, the Roma people, the gypsies. And, um, and it was the first time I think that the word, the Holocaust, you know, Holocaust became part of the, the American lexicon. Mm Mm-hmm. That anyway, it's so Eva was asked because she in Terre Haute by a local news station that and was aware that she had survived um, to speak after the um, the first night that they were running the the film. And it was, uh, I believe, a two part series. And so she spoke and there was such a response they ask her back the next night. Wow. And it was a way of, you know, now we talk about after, you know, say the names or, mm-hmm. you know, it's important to say the names, tell the story. And it started or on the road to be, to get to the point where she finally did, but to keep that bottled up and not to let people know. Right. Um, was it was devastating and in damaging. So when she started to do that, she started to be asked to tell about her experience mm-hmm. and uh, the wider experience of the Holocaust. And um, she, you know, thought more and more and more about it. And on the second trip, um, and my wife was with me this time that we took to the area and they, they were doing, um, experimenting with an audio tour mm-hmm. since Eva had died, uh, in that summer right. of 2020 that, or no, 19. Right. 
And um, this was at the end of February, beginning of March of 2020. And of course, that entered another strange period in world history. Sure. But um, to hear Eva's voice in your ear as you are walking around wow. and and following her chronologically her experience but she talked at one point about finally having this almost vision of seeing this little girl mm-hmm. and realizing that this little girl was her as a child and being able to really you know become one as an adult with that experience and it was yet another one of those milestones of her getting to this idea of forgiveness. So that must have been an incredible moment for you to hear her voice as you're walking around and for everyone else. But I'm guessing she's thinking she has this incredible story. Others have this incredible story of their experience, but she knows she's not going to live forever. And so she and her sister Miriam uh, start up the Candles organization. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's, um, it's a, it is about the, the children of Auschwitz Nazi mm-hmm. experiments. And it is um, a museum. It's a small, wonderful museum, great staff. Um, and they not only in the museum, it represents her and Miriam's specific story, right. but also um, goes wider than that and is really uh, uh, a quick but quite encompassing um, historical narrative of what happened. Right. And um, and one thing that Eva did that that I mentioned these trips to Poland, um, to Auschwitz and Birkenau, mm-hmm. and it's um, it is I I thought I can't help but think that in many ways we were pilgrims, right. and more than certainly not tourists, but but to go to these sites where there was so much horror and suffering and it's um people have asked do you feel that they're haunted and you don't feel that you feel a certain kind of sacredness mm-hmm. to this and that how important it is as, as we've talked about to know this story right and to keep such tragedy from ever happening Again, and we, we humans, wander into it all the time. Right. Um, but it's I would encourage people if the, if if they can uh, to take one of these trips with the Candles Museum or just to go further and see if you can get a sense of the historical and human mm-hmm. importance of these places and preserving them. Yeah, it's it's an incredible story because I'm looking through the pictures now. Um, I did want to just end with this. This is near the end of your book when she's telling her stories and people are listening. Obviously, they're getting emotional. Some of them start to cry. Yeah. And I'm going to try to read this with a straight 
uh, without losing it because she she says Eva says to this person who's crying, "Why are you crying? It's a happy story. I survived. I beat Hitler. I beat Mengele. I beat the Nazis. I beat the communists, and I am here to tell my story." And wow, that's incredible. Yeah. It's uh, to have been there at that moment, right? And to have heard her say that um, she would not let this be the, the end. Right. And, um, and forgiveness was, was a way of her not exonerating terrible crimes, mm-hmm. but finding a way that she could go forward in a, in a positive way. In right. life, which she she did, she she helped so many people with their traumas, right. and it's the idea of forgiveness. It's easy to misunderstand. It's also it, it's easy to to understand why people would resist it because it, it these are horrible horrible things. Yes, but it was it's about preserving yourself and being able to embrace life again. And that speech, that last day in that hottest um, summer in Eastern Europe and Europe in general, Mm -hmm. as she said those words, I mean, it was a a real clarion call to to continue and do what one could to, to in whatever small ways or large ways to make this life better. For yourself and everyone else. Absolutely. And I think she figured out, and this is what you convey in the book, by forgiving those who have wronged her, she can search for peace and live in peace and not have this hang over her head for the rest of her life. So she turned this very intense negative into a positive. Yeah, it's, um, well, she would say that, you know, that anger is the seed of war. Uh, and forgiveness is the seed of peace. And we can see with um, how many different countries and different groups have justified anger. Right. Um, but it just leads to endless cycles of war and repercussion. And, and there, it was a way of saying no. Um, I think of Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce Indians who, after the longest retreat in military history, said once he was finally captured, from this point, I will fight no more forever. And that didn't mean capitulation. It just meant there has to be another way. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Here, here. Mr. Joe Lee, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for this book. I encourage everyone to check it out. It's called Forgiveness, the story of Eva Kaur, survivor of the Auschwitz Twins Experiments. Mr. Lee, thank you very much for your time, sir. And thank you, Ray. It's It's been a real pleasure to share this time with you and to talk about this. Thank you. 
Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.